Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. We're continuing our conversation with Shannon Caldwell Montes on the secret 1922 meetings. We'll talk about some of the people who attended those. It'll include Richard Lyman and many others. Richard was the last apostle excommunicated for adultery, or was it polygamy? We'll find out more in our next conversation with Shannon and find out more of the takeaways from this meeting. Check out our conversation. Well, one of the things that I found pretty interesting that's a little bit off topic, but I really want to cover anyway, was the Richard Lyman affair. Yes. <laughs> for, for two reasons. Number one, he was in the 1920, these 1922 meetings, right? Mm-hmm. And he's, I have to credit him to being one of the people that gave me the list. It was oh. his journal, journal that listed who was at one of the meetings, and Jan Schodel's journal that listed, that made another list of people. So thanks, Richard I was Lyman. wondering how you said that, because I was like, that's a horrible name to spell. And I can I see why. I think it's Schodel. I yeah. don't know if I ever say it right, but. S-J-O, right? Yeah, and actually, so Richard Lyman's journal in his journal, it says Shirtall. And so I couldn't figure out who this was until later I saw an article about Book of Mormon historicity, basically written by a man named Jan Shud- S-J-O-D-A-H-L. Right, Sh- he's Norwegian. Shirtall. Right. Yeah. And so S-J, yeah, all of that. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's probably the guy that he, you know, Lyman just misspelled his name, and when I went to that man's journals, Shodal's journals, that's when I found the other list. Ah. So I know it was the guy because he also mentions this meeting in his journal and then also ma- then makes a list. So it is the guy, but it, I think that may be why these meetings weren't necessarily discovered. I think people had seen stuff in, in Lyman's journals. I don't know. I don't know why I was the first one to put all this together, but... So, back up just a little bit then. So, there were three meetings with the general authorities, basically. And then there were three other meetings at uh, Moyle's, Moyle's house, house. And some of the general authorities, like Ivan's and Lyman, Lyman. were there as well. So I think they're the only two that were there that, I mean, and, and Roberts. Moyle. Wasn't Moyle a general Moyle authority? Moyle was not a general oh, he authority. Was he was a, I mean, he was a... He was big into the Democratic Party, as was B.H. Roberts, but he was not a church, a general authority of the okay. church. He uh, was very close with many of them, and I think that's why he was able because to... Because Henry Moyle was in the first presidency later, but this was a different Moyle. That was his son. That was his son. So his son was in the first presidency. Yeah. Okay. And, and Shodal, or however you say his name, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about him first, but I want to talk about the Lymans, because that is such an interest and especially you gave more details than i had seen really on uh on on that whole with the police and everything yeah (laughs) that was i mean i didn't i didn't find that information i i had read an article that was already out so i just compiled it but um yeah i read an article that talked about just him being in his underwear out in the cold right uh, lyman was one of these uh more liberal uh Mm -hmm people and then uh and then he got involved in kind of polygamy kind of adultery was it adultery or polygamy or 
I think it's a murky situation for people who grew up with polygamy, grew up believing that there was nothing wrong with it, grew up believing it was the higher law, and then suddenly being told that, you know, you can't live this when he meets this woman who would be a great wife. I think he was like, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't. So in his, what he did with this woman is they promised to be sealed in heaven. You know, when one of us dies, we'll, the other one will get sealed to you, whoever. So they had planned on, we've, I mean, the church never disavowed eternal polygamy. We, our prophet right now has eternal polygamy. He's sealed to more than one woman. So he just believed what we still believe is that you can be sealed in heaven. Um, his problem was acting on it on earth while his other wife was still alive. Well, and his other wife was the Relief Society general president, right? Right. Yep. <laughs> yes, she was. So Amy was... Brown Lyman. I remember hearing about her like 15 years ago in a church meeting. They talked about different um, Relief Society general presidents and hearing that her husband had gotten excommunicated due to adultery. And I was like, how have I never heard this story? So it was kind of fun to come and and actually be able to research this even more. I remember looking it up at the time and being like, wow, that's crazy. Because there's to, a new biography on Amy Brown Lyman by Dave Hall, right? Oh, really? Yes. He was kind of the, Dave Hall was the, kind of the expert on this part and Amy Brown Lyman. So and I should mention I for my listeners, articles. there's a David Hall that I interviewed back in January. This is a different guy. <laughs> Dave <laughs> With the Hall. same name. <laughs> yeah. He did so much great work, and so mostly I'm just telling everyone what he said about this. Um, he had he has done the great historical work on this. Okay, so so Lyman was in these 1922 meetings, one of the more liberal members of the, uh, uh, what should I say, intellectually liberal members yeah. of of the quorum. He meets this woman who, hadn't she been involved in a polygamous relationship She was. Before? She had gotten excommunicated for being in a post-1904, post-Second Manifesto marriage. And was she older than him? I, th- I think she was. She, I can't remember. I think okay. they were within an acceptable amount. It wasn't like he was in his 50s right. and she was a teen, right? <laughs> and there were those. And so he was but, counseling her about her previous polygamy yeah. After she got excommunicated, she wanted to be reinstated as a member of the church. And he was like, I can help you. Let's, you know, let's, I'll counsel you. And they became, they hit it off. And I think, I really do think they had a chaste relationship for probably for many years where they were just friends and just enjoyed each other's company. I think they saw each other and I think they had both felt unseen a lot of the time. Um, so I think they just really enjoyed each other, and then they ended up enjoying each other too much. <laughs> for. And do we have any idea, because it sounds like the some of the apostles try, really tried to humiliate him. Yeah. Because why would you call the police on this? Right. And even the police chief later was like, I had no idea it was going to be this. Kind of apologized and said, I'm sorry, if I'd known it was you, I wouldn't have participated. But they just said, oh, we're going to go catch some big wig, and he's with his mistress. I mean, what did they tell the police? Why would the police need to go barge in this house in the first place? Right. It was for it was for publicity. But they didn't. I think they thought it was maybe a um, political 
thing, you know, some guy. I think they were really surprised. Oh, they thought some guy was having an affair. They maybe? they were told it was a big wig, and that yeah, he was at the home of his lover, and they were going to break in and catch him in the act of adultery. And when they broke in, they were like, oh, they were in bed together. It's an apostle. Yeah, and I think they had. I mean, he was at least wearing his garments. He was uh, taken outside in just his garments in November in Utah. So, I mean, if the humiliation wasn't enough, it would have also been very cold. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's kind of surprising because, you know, given that he was wearing this sacred garments that people aren't supposed to be seen in, that, you know, they would be taking him outside, not giving him a robe, not covering him up, saying... Who, who were the architects of this raid? Um, Wasn't it Harold B. Lee? According to Dave, um, Dave Hall, he seemed to think it was... Well, and, yeah, there was... I'm, I'm murky on the details. Uh, J. Reuben Clark, Joseph Fielding Smith, and Harold B. Lee. Yeah, they, he's able to show how that, that they were... The ones that spearheaded this, they were the ones that called the police and said, we're going to do this. And it was just so, you know, hearing Richard Lyman talk about it later, like, these guys were my friends. And how did, I had seen them earlier that day at a meeting. And the fact that they couldn't just come up to me and say, are you having a, an affair? Or, you know, are you being inappropriate? He's like, they never said anything to me. They just showed up at my house picked me up and took me down to, was, did they take him to the police station or did they take him to church offices? Um, um, but they, yeah, they just came after him and he was just so, he said there was an, um, so there was a streetcar full of armed officers. It wasn't just one or two. It was kind of like they didn't, they wanted this to be irreversible and they if they had spoken to him privately it may have been reversible and my guess is that maybe stuff like that had happened in the past and handled been handled privately he was really shocked and sad to see that his friends had turned him in and not handled this privately i also wonder because this was after 1933 when the third manifesto happened was heber j grant trying to make a, a statement as well do we have any indication of that I I don't think so. I feel like Heber J. Grant was, from what my studies, I think he was a little bit more, just a, more of a team builder than a, you know, trying to get consensus from everyone rather than like our side versus your side. And there was a bit of a schism there with the conservative apostles and the more liberal apostles. And um, and I'm not the first one to point this out, but just that there was this kind of schism. And what happened was the conservatives outlived the liberals and they were able to replace the, con you know, the, the dead liberals with, with conservatives because they were higher in the hierarchy. Because, again, like Talmadge, I think, was the first um, educated apostle. And that didn't happen until 1911. After this controversy with BYU, they were like, oh, let's get in an educated guy so they can't say we're all a bunch of dummies and, you know, not ever taking any um, academic views into consideration. So they started getting more people with um, education. But again, the people that were there previously are higher in the hierarchy and they, you know, become the prophet. 
like Joseph Fielding Smith did. So he kind of has a lot more power by the end of this whole fiasco. And so the conservatives won, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and if you see, if there was some, and I talk about it in here, um, but the number of BYU students believing in, you know, literal fall of Adam and and literal Book of Mormon, um, you know, Adam and Eve, things like that, there were more people believing that in at BYU in the 1930s than there were in the 1970s. So evolution and things like that were more acceptable Acceptable. in the 30s in Mormonism than they were in the 70s. Because Joseph Fielding Smith. (laughs) Because Joseph Fielding Smith came out so hard against it, it became a kind of a dissident viewpoint to go against him. So the church all moved that way. And do we have any indication if Amy Brown Lyman knew about this uh, affair of her husband? There were rumors that she did. Um, she never divorced him. She never divorced him. She's like, he was a great husband. I love, you know, he's a good husband. And actually it was a kind of scandalous to stay with a husband who had, who was um, being disciplined by the church. Cause it was almost like you were okay with it. So um, she knew a lot of people looked down on her for forgiving him and taking him back or not divorcing him. But she's like, these two... Like, they, their letters were so affectionate, and he was like, I'm so excited for Amy to come back. I think they were a really um, strong pair as far as mentally, that I think they really enjoyed the challenge of each other. I think they were a really strong match. She was a very ambitious woman who wanted to do a lot. She had, she seemed to have fewer kids than most, and who knows how that happened, but... She, yeah, she was General Relief Society president. She was in the Relief Society general presidency for decades. She got so much done. She's kind of like the mother of social work in Utah. She was a really, really inspiring woman. And kind of a Sherry Dew type? Yeah. And it was just kind of sad to see her legacy subsumed by the scandal. Because so, she resigned. She, re- she ended up resigning about a year after the scandal because she realized that she had lost respect and leadership people were kind of side-eyeing her and she's like i can't lead if nobody likes me anymore so she ended up resigning she was just like it's too public um people are too upset by it so she stepped down so her career um in the church also ended with his um his being removed from the quorum he wasn't actually excommunicated i don't think he was disfellowshipped no was he i thought he was excommunicated. i think he was excommunicated he was. but he did get reinstated he right. did get rebaptized um but again he didn't get reinstated to apostleship he just kind of quietly lived out the rest of his days and lost a lot of friends and i don't know it's and a sad story woman? The other woman, um, he did keep up the relationship for a while after being discovered. He was kind of like, I don't see why everyone has a problem with it. And that's why I also kind of think that maybe his wife was... Was she excommunicated? They were both excommunicated. Okay. Um, And we haven't checked family asserts to see if she's sealed to him now. You know, that would be a great idea. I don't remember whether or not I did it. So, yeah, it said 
they had the relationship for at least five years, kept it going afterwards, but... Um, and then Shodal, is that how you say his name? Mm-hmm. Can you talk, give us a little biography of him? I thought he was an interesting character in all these meetings. <laughs> we want the scandal, huh? Yeah. So Shodal... <laughs> <laughs> Shodal was an interesting guy. He was, um, he was a convert. He grew up in Norway, I believe. Um, he was... He ran the church magazines for a while. He was in these, he really loved the archaeology. So he was in the 1921 meetings and then again in the 1922 meetings, the 1921 like Book of Mormon archaeology meetings. And maybe that is where I actually go into that. But um, his scandal was that he was basically running the church newspapers and uh, the printing and. Um, it was discovered that he owned a house of ill repute (laughs) (laughs) and it was probably a patron and he was quietly removed from his job and sent to England and worked on the millennial star um, for about five years until everything blew over and then he came back and was back into printing and that's why he was at these meetings because he was still doing different church writings like the the scandal was, was only magazine. printed in a, a norwegian magazine oh it was really suppressed in the english press and um after five years everyone had forgotten about it until some guy wrote his wrote a i think a thesis about should and so i was able to find this oh. guy's research about him and um yeah another one where he his wife had died and he was finding other ways to enjoy his life. (laughs) And when the church found out, they didn't excommunicate him. They sent him abroad, literally abroad this time, not just outside of Utah, sent him to England. And that's where he really started getting into the archaeology and started printing stuff in England about Book of Mormon archaeology. And he was a mezzo guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. He he liked the, um, just all of the, I think he loved all of it. I think he was trying to make it all work. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. If you like those theories, you probably remember that better than I do. But mostly, I was kind of like, who cares? <laughs> I say well, he I liked the puzzle more than the doctrine. Theory. He loved, he was like you. I think should all, maybe that's why he just loved, he loved picking up all these pieces and seeing if he can put them together and make this puzzle work. In his papers, I remember he had this really neatly drawn um, map of what he believed were the Book of Mormon lands and where Azarahemla would have been and things like that. So he was definitely your geography nerd as far as Book of Mormon geography. Yeah, he... Okay, yeah. He was his. He wrote a book about it several years later, and it became the foundation of what a, a lot of the limited geography. We think that actually Shudal had heard. You know, and if I remember correctly, in his papers, in his journal, he talked about Anthony Ivins giving this limited geography theory in these Book of Mormon geography meetings in 1921, and I think he was blown away by it and thought it was amazing. And then several years later, he wrote a book that kind of did the whole limited geography, Mesoamerica, like Yucatan, 
type of theory. And that's where most people credit Shadal with this limited geography, but his journals credit Ivan's. Right. So, um, yeah, that's that's my recollection of how this all goes. I would send you my <laughs> presentation on all the different geography theories, but you probably wouldn't be interested. But It's like platform nine and three quarters to me. <laughs> So anyway, are there any other things from your thesis that we missed? What what uh, what else do we need to talk about? There's so many different types of things to talk about. I feel like you know, if we look at Amy Brown Lyman, we can talk about the role of women, how they were stronger and got weakened. We could talk about you know Richard Lyman and the whole whether or not the brethren are united, and sometimes they will even just undercut each other like that. Um, Harris with the academic freedom types of things. I really liked, I think it was George Middleton. He was one that I was able to say he definitely lost his faith in the Book of Mormon after these meetings. Because in the beginning of it, he was a close friend of B.H. Roberts. And in one of the first letters, in response to writer... Let me just make sure it's Middleton, Um, because there were two doctors. No, I think it was Middleton. Yeah, it had to have been Middleton. Uh, Richard Lyman had actually written him a couple letters and said, what do you think about these guys' questions? Asked him these questions about Book of Mormon geography, or, you know, cemeteries and languages and all of this. And Middleton wrote a response that was kind of similar to what B.H. Roberts started out with. And gave, he, gave, he ended up giving Ryder a response to this letter that was pretty similar to what Middleton had started out with. But within a couple years, we have Middleton taking a trip to... South America, and speaking as if this is not Book of Mormon lands. He's like, clearly these people were pagan. They were not worshiping some kind of Christian figure. And um, he even talks about drinking alcohol on this trip that might have shocked his Mormon friends, but he kind of seems to become an atheist after these meetings. So he is one that, um, or maybe a deist, at most, but he definitely was like, I don't, um, I mean, I think there may be a God who organized the earth, but I don't think there's a God that's involved, and I don't think Mesoamericans are descendants from, you know, Christ, you know proto-Christians. Right. So, um, so that was an interesting one, too, as well, to see. He gave me, because he had a letter so close before, I mean, actually really related to this whole incident where Richard Lyman's like, hey, we're having some questions about Book of Mormon. What do you think about this? I know you're a history buff. And he responds with some really, you know, pat answers. But later, you know, when B.H. Roberts maybe perhaps complicates those answers in, with all of these problems. meetings and, and more specific problems and having a longer discussion about it, I think he really changed his mind and and stopped defending the Book of Mormon at all. So um, so to me, that's an interesting one. But um, for the most part, I think partly because at the time, people didn't leave the church and get their name removed. That wasn't even possible till like, 1980. If you left the church, you didn't. It just was... You just quit going. 
quiet, yeah, you'd have to get excommunicated to get your name removed, and that didn't happen very often. So there were several people that I think quit going, perhaps, but did not make a big deal about it. So, so because you, when we started, you said you went into this, you wanted to see how people's, and I don't want to, I don't want to say this wrong, how their testimonies or their beliefs changed when confronted with. Uh, challenging material yeah and destroying it's not the only change that thing that can show change right i would say joseph fielding smith maybe changed okay anyway but yeah i could see so as far as these people that that came to these meetings you know i know you said people kind of focus on bh roberts so would you say bh bh roberts became more of a nuanced member or did he totally lose his testimony or or what do you think I think B.H. Roberts valued the church. Um, and I think, but he, I think he also was aware and um, conscious that if you said certain things, you don't get very far. He warns a couple of uh, students that were going to divinity school, like, hey, don't talk about Mormon history or you're going to, like, this isn't going to work for it's you. It's going to ruin your career. Yeah. So he would say things like that to people. Um, he seemed to, I mean, yeah, depends on who you look at. There are accounts of him really, you know, in the month before he died, writing, having a conversation with a friend where he's like, Book of Mormon is not what you think. And, you know, I tried to have a meeting with the general authorities. And he talks about... Was he the one who met with David Whitmer? No, that, that was, was James. Story. That was Moyle. Henry Moyle? Henry Moyle. No, not Henry Moyle. James Moyle. James Moyle. Um, when he finished law school, he went through, you know, when he finished law school abroad in um, Chicago or wherever, um, he went through Missouri on his way home and he met David Whitmer and asked him about his experience seeing the, you know, the plates. And he said that he was really upset at the time that it seemed a lot more spiritual than physical, his experience. James was upset because David said it was more of a spiritual experience well, David, than a physical. David didn't say it was spiritual. He was like, I saw it, you know, as I see you, but also kind of like in another realm. You know, it was kind of like I manifest it. Like whether I, I believe it... <laughs> I've heard people say this, whether I see it or not, I know it's true. This kind of uh, what he was, the, I can find it for Whitman you. Was but he said, um, he talked about, yeah, being a little bit upset that it was not as physical as he would have hoped. And I'm trying to remember, was, was, I think, if I remember right, there were two people who wrote biographies of him. One was Gordon Hinckley. The other was Gene Sessions. Does that sound right? Or am I talking uh, about the wrong Moyle? person? Yeah. 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 Gordon Hinckley wrote a biography of James Moyle. And so in the months before Moyle died, he um, got up and, and spoke about how, you know, when he talked to David Whitmer, he was upset at first. And then he turns it into a faith-promoting story. Um, and that, 
account was published in the uh, the juvenile instructor, and I think it maybe had done some damage at the church because uh, it seems like <laughs> Hinckley was trying to kind of bury that. That's my guess. And also the Hinckley connection. There is another person in that was in these meetings that I could not determine. It was a um, a Mr. a doctor. No, it was a Professor Hinckley. There was a Professor Hinckley at these meetings, but it could have been Gordon B. Hinckley's father. It could have been his uncle, and I just couldn't be sure which one it was. So I didn't. I wasn't able to determine that, so I didn't profile that person. Um, but it feels like maybe Hinckley knew about the Moyle meetings and knew about Moyle's kind of at the end being like a topic that people would be interested in and, and wanted to frame it in the way he would prefer. That was my guess. Who knows? I would like to spend more time into that, but Gordon B. Hinckley's paper, papers are impossible to get because he hasn't been dead long enough. So in about a hundred years, somebody can go look this up and I would love that. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Gene Sessions, was he the Weber State professor? Is that the same guy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I remember him. I, I went to Weber State, so I remember him at Weber State. So Yeah, I remember writing some emails with him. Like, uh, I, was, I had noticed that Moyle had had this, um, had ha- given this talk about not about being disappointed with David Whitmer's account and in his journal it was there and in the biographies nobody mentions that but if you see the papers they're there and um, I think Dan Vogel is the one that kind of points this out in like he has a compilation of Mormon documents and he sees it there and so you know I personally was like is this for real so then I went and got Moyle's papers and looked and saw yes and in his journal he does give this other account where he talks about being disappointed. The other versions, Hinckley's version and Session's version, don't mention that. But I have to be, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I was able to ask Gene Sessions. He was aware of that. I couldn't ask Hinckley, but I can't imagine he wasn't aware of that. There's also, yeah, Hinckley's biography is just an interesting thing that I wasn't able to fully go into, but there's parts where Moyle in his own letters is kind of like, I think they're trying to tell my story in a way that's not accurate. The church seems to be following up on my biographer to make sure that I keep it... um, Faith promoting. Faith promoting. Yeah, so, I don't know. I was... I felt like there was something there, but... Heber J. Grant goes and invites Moyle for a ride in his car and is like asking him questions about what his biography is going to be about and things like that. So, you know, here's Moyle who had had these meetings in his house. People know that he knows things, and I think they're just trying to make sure that he doesn't really talk too much about what he knows. And that's, you know, not only these meetings, but also his David Whitmer experience. I think he maybe seems like a bit of a loose cannon to church leadership and so they wanted to tell his story so once the biographer died um, Gordon Hinckley ended up picking up that biography and finishing it and it was very faith promoting 
um, I thought. And, I don't know, it seemed like there was an attempt to frame this guy in a certain way that was only one-sided. And, and uh, Moyle does say that he was afraid that his story wouldn't be told accurately. So, I don't know. So, as, so just in summary, B.H. Roberts, more nuanced, maybe lost his testimony, you're not sure, or... How can we know anyone's mind? Right. You know, he he did seem Unless to have write it down. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And if and even then when somebody writes it down, people are gonna have different interpretations of right. what does this word really mean, like kind of based on what they're hoping the outcome to be. Mm-hmm. So clearly I'm gonna take a little more critical view of his ultimate conclusion and the Wesley Lloyd journal talks about and I actually quote the entire Um, entry in the Wesley Lloyd Journal about him saying that the conversation then drifted to the Book of Mormon and the surprising story he related to me that while he was president of the Eastern States Mission, a Logan man by the name of Ryder persuaded a scholarly friend who was a student in Washington to read through and criticize the Book of Mormon. The criticism was at the time of the discovery of America, there were 50 distinct languages in existence among the American Indians, not dialects, but languages as different as English is from Spanish, and that all human knowledge indicates that fundamental languages change very slowly, whereas the time of Book of Mormon, the people were supposed to have been speaking all one tongue. The student asked Ryder to explain that proposition. Ryder then sent the letter to Talmadge, who studied it over during a trip east, asked Brother Roberts to make a careful and investigation and studied and to get an answer for the letter Roberts went to work and investigated it from every angle but before but could not answer it satisfactorily to himself and at his request President Grant called a meeting of the Twelve Apostles and Brother Roberts presented the matter told them frankly that he was stumped and asked for their aid in, in the explanation in answer they merely stood up and bore testimony of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon George Albert Smith, in tears, testified that his faith in the Book of Mormon had not been shaken by the question. President Ivins, the man most likely to be able to answer a question on that subject, was unable to produce the solution. No answer was available. Brother Roberts could not criticize them for not being able to answer it or assist him, but he said that in a church which claimed continuous revelation, a crisis had arisen where revelation was necessary. After the meeting, he wrote to President Grant expressing his disappointment at the failure and especially at the failure of President Ivins to contribute to the problem. It was mentioned at the meeting by Brother Roberts that there were other Book of Mormon problems that needed special attention. Richard R. Lyman spoke up and asked if there were things that would help our prestige, and when Brother Roberts said no, answered no, he said, then why discuss them? This attitude was too much for the historically-minded Roberts. Then they commit, you know, then... There was a committee appointed to study this problem consisting of Brother Talmadge, Ballard, Roberts, and one other apostle. They met and looked vacantly at one another. We do know this happened. We have the letter from this one as well. But they said they looked at they looked vacantly at one another, but none seemed to know what to do about it. Brother Roberts finally mentioned that he had at least attempted an answer, and they had it in his drawer. That was an answer that would satisfy people that didn't think, but a very inadequate answer to a thinking man. They asked him to read it, and after hearing it, they adopted it by vote and said that was about the best they could do. After this, Brother Roberts made a special Book of Mormon study, treated the system 
problem systematically and historically and in a 400 typewritten page thesis sent forth a revolutionary article on the origin of the Book of Mormon and sent it to President Grant. It's an article far too strong for the average church member, but for the intellectual group, he considers it a contribution to assist in explaining Mormonism. He swings to a psychological explanation of the Book of Mormon and shows that the plates were not objective but subjective with Joseph Smith, that his exceptional imagination qualified him psychologically for the experience which he had in presenting it to the world and the Book of Mormon, and that the plates with the Urim and Thummim were not objective. So he's, again, saying they didn't exist. He says... This guy is saying B.H. Roberts believed they didn't exist. He explains certain literary, literary difficulties in the book as the miraculous incident of the entire nation of the Jaredites, the dramatic story of one man being left on each side, and one of them finally being slain. Also the New York flat hills surrounding the great civilization and another part of the country. We see none of the cliffs of the Maya or the high mountain peaks or other geographical environments of the early American civilization that the entire story laid in New England flat hills surrounding. There are some things which has made Brother Roberts shift his base on the Book of Mormon. Instead of regarding it as the strongest evidence we have of church divinity, he regards it as the one which most needs bolstering. His greatest claim for the divinity of the Prophet Joseph lies in the Doctrine and Covenants. So he's basically saying Joseph Smith, at the end of his life, this is weeks before he died, and I'm sorry, you can cut that whole part out, but weeks before he died, um, Roberts was saying, I don't believe there was a physical Book of Mormon. There was no Urim and Thummim. I think Joseph Smith there were no plates. came up with his imagination, came up with this. And he was an imaginary guy. And he was maybe prophetic. And, you know, if you look at the DNC and things like that, he was very visionary. But this was all visionary. This was not physical. This is not actual Book of Mormon history is, you know, this is not history. This is imaginary. That's, and that's what Roberts felt. That's what he told this guy. Um, and I've seen critics um, talk about this later and say, well, um, Wesley Lloyd got a couple details wrong. But it's like, how would Wesley Lloyd know all of these details if Roberts had not told him, you know, oh, I had this meeting with President Grant, we have letters from B.H. Roberts to President Grant. You know, we can have, we can show historical documents that show that all these meetings happened. And like the letters saying from B.H. Roberts to President Grant saying, I'm so disappointed. And how are we going to attack this if, um, if we can't even answer it? So we do see that this whole incident happened in great, he's explaining it in great detail. Someone, Wesley Lloyd was not there. He was not in the hierarchy. He was not in this room when it happened. So he knew too many details to have not been told this. Um, so to say, oh, he got everything right except for B.H. Roberts' attitude, that doesn't seem plausible to me. He wrote this at the time. He wrote this within days of talking to B.H. Roberts. So I'm going to count that as a credible witness because to me, I don't need the church to be true. Whereas somebody who maybe is needing the church to be true will try to say, well, he's not a reliable witness because he got something wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Talmadge was not, or, you know, he named somebody in these meetings that wasn't there. You know, he's, this is over a decade after, and he's getting it secondhand, sure. But 
this is Robert's, you know, saying, oh, I had this incident that was really upsetting to me, and, I, you know, I don't think the Book of Mormon is true. I don't think it's physical. I don't think it's literal. You know, I think Joseph Smith was a prophet, but, like, I don't think he was a translator of the Book of Mormon. That's, I think, where he ended up. So, I believe he lost his faith in the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Okay. I, I'm not going to say he thought it was garbage and the whole church was a fraud. I, I wouldn't go that far, but I would say I know a lot of Mormons who, you know, are in that camp that don't believe it's literally true. So, I'm not going to say he's he became an apostate, but I do believe that he also had reasons that he couldn't just let the whole thing go. I think in a different situation, he may have been someone who walked off and let it let it go. So, who knows? I know one of the other things you said at the end of your thesis was a lot of people focus on B.H. Roberts because he did the big study and everything. Uh, and you, you did mention other people like Joseph Fielding Smith. It affected him in that he became even more faithful Intransigent. And, yeah. and, and fundamentalist and that sort of a thing. Um, what about others in the meeting? Can you, can you give any generalizations mm-hmm. for others in the meeting? It's so hard because for the most part they're journals aren't available um i did see like george albert or they didn't have keep journals not everyone you know did that i remember looking at george albert smith where he in the lloyd account george albert smith got up and cried and testified that he knows the book of mormon's true um and i could see in his journal or his, his diary it's not a journal he's not writing about his feelings he's just saying this, but like immediately after he w- he had like a r- really bad stomach ache, and he was someone that's known to have a lot of anxiety. So I think in his he like had a bad headache and stomach ache, and was like missing meetings and stuck in bed for a while. I think he found this very upsetting. But again, what do you do when this is your job and your religion and everything? You know, everything rides on this. I think you work as hard as you possibly can to make it work. I don't think many of these men had the luxury of just saying, eh, oh well, whoops, I was mistaken. They would lose all credibility in pretty much every circle that they ran in. They would lose their entire community. And even as someone who did not have a lot of prestige and validation from my church community as a woman, you know, who was not in leadership, but I still lost a lot and I had so much less invested. So, I can see why this may have been more than almost any of these people could handle. And that's why they buried it for so long. And that's why a hundred years later, we're still talking about these because it was on the shelf. Yeah, it's literally a hundred years later, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a hundred years now. When I wrote this, I was like, oh, I should have waited a couple years. But now it's been a couple years. So, (laughs) here we go. So, can we give any generalizations? It sound, I mean, would it be safe to say the apostles and general authorities who were in the meeting either rejected it completely, like Joseph Fielding Smith, or, or maybe I shouldn't say rejected it, but put it on a shelf maybe and just kind of ignored it, ignored the issues while others became more nuanced? Let's just talk about that group first. Can you? Is so that a good hard to say. Again, it's so hard to say because I couldn't, I couldn't access actual records. So okay. maybe I could find talks 
Um, so you, I mean, you're just to, not able to, to go through that 20, or, you know, 20, I don't even remember how many people were in the room with the general authority meetings. My Mine had 20, at least 20 people, right? General authorities, I think meetings. it was 27 or something like that. Um, that was the 12 plus the presidency of the 70s. So maybe 17, 21 people, something like that. Their stuff, their papers are just so much harder to access. So I can't, I really can't say. It does seem that the church as a whole, for a minute, tried to kind of like, can, can we embrace um, science and faith and make this work? And I think after a few years, they started to just say, you know what? faith only you know if it if it comes as a question of faith or science go with go with faith you can see frederick pack one of my favorite and we'll talk about him he he was a scientist and he wrote a year a book a few years later a few years you know about 1925 so after these meetings that really did a good job for a lot of intellectuals at the time kind of balancing faith and science and so it looked for a minute like maybe the church could make this work. But then we get people like Joseph Fielding Smith, who was like, absolutely not. I think he was also, Joseph Fielding Smith was really threatened by intellectuals. And he wanted to show that his status was higher as a man of faith. And because he had, I mean, I think he had, he hadn't even graduated high school. So for him, he has to go on the cultural cachet that he has, which is, I'm a son of an apostle, and, you know, I'm a descendant of Hiram. So he's going to use his cred as hard as he can, whereas someone like Talmadge, who is lower than him, can't use quite the same amount, and that's the way the church ended up. I think, I do feel like there was a reaction, and that certain things were put on shelves, and yeah, if you even talked about B.H. Roberts years later, they... Brigham Matson tried to... Was it Brigham Matson or... It was a different Brigham. There's two Brighams. One did a biography of B.H. Roberts and... The, the church tried to, like, keep B.H. Roberts not... not they wanted him to kind of go out in history. It wasn't until the B.H. Roberts papers were actually published that they let the um, biography of Roberts be published. And even then it was, oh, Truman Madsen. So I get confused. There's Brigham Madsen and Truman Madsen. Truman Madsen was the pro-church um, B.H. Roberts biographer. And then we had Truman, uh, Brigham Madsen, who was the one who published the B.H. Roberts papers, which were kind of damaging to the church. So in 85? Is that the book? In 85. Okay. So those two, Truman Madsen was, yeah, wrote the book Defender of the Faith, the B.H. Roberts story. You know, just had to make sure he was defending the faith. Like, that's, if you know anything about B.H. Roberts is that he had a very strong testimony. And then we have Brigham Madsen showing publishing papers and letters where B.H. Roberts is clearly in the journal entry with Les Wesley Lloyd. He's clearly not as firmly planted in the way that they want. I feel like he, he Roberts personally felt that he was planted in a very good way, but if they only wanted 
literal truth, literal Book of Mormon, literal golden plates. I don't think B.H. Roberts was on board with any of that. He was not a literalist, as some would have liked. And as far as the other meetings with the intelligentsia, was it pretty similar? A lot of people put on the shelf, became more or less literalistic. A few people fell away. Is that is that right? Just quietly? It's hard to say what fell away is. And most people are not writing what their church attendance is. You know, um, a couple... A couple of people did write biographies that seemed a little more um, deist rather than Mormon. So I would say, you know, they may not have felt affiliated with Mormonism to the same extent, such as um, Middleton, who um, kind of said, you know, I, I don't necessarily respond to any certain type of faith. I'm just thinking my own things. And so he, yeah, some people just seem to. I don't know. I think Mormonism is as much an identity as it was a belief. So, you know, and I feel like I'm an example of that. I still love my Mormon heritage, my Mormon roots. Whether or not I believe in the literal religion, and even if I believe that the religion is toxic and needs to change, because I'm a Mormon, I care about that. Because, you know, it's my people. I still feel like it's my people. So if something needs to be fixed, I want it to be fixed. I don't want it to do harm. So I think maybe all these people were, in their own ways, trying to work for its ultimate good or at least trying not to harm it or leave it alone. I don't think anyone wanted to make a scandal out of it, including B.H. Roberts. So, again, history is never black and white. It's just so nuanced and people don't tell you their own mind most of the time so I'm not going to speak for B.H. Roberts I'm just going to look at the documents I can have my own opinions but I can't say for sure what he thought I he loved Joseph Smith he thought he was inspiring I guess we can say that even at the end he was saying that to Wesley Lloyd as mm -hmm. much as he's like I don't believe in the literal book of Mormon I believe in Joseph Smith so he didn't lose his testimony in the church, I would say, but he definitely doesn't have the type of testimony that the church wanted him to have at that time. All right. Well, are you working on any other projects in uh, history? <laughs> I don't know. I, I may turn this into a book. I, I got overwhelmed right out. I just needed a break. I don't know. It was a lot, and it was really exciting, but... I don't know. I'm still figuring out the next step for me. I'm enjoying, I'm teaching history at um, the community college and enjoying that. And at Salt Lake Community College? No, at WNC, which is Western oh. Nevada College in Carson City. Um, and I teach at UNR. Also just kind of part-time teaching American history and it's it's got its own heartache. So, you know, I becoming a historian was kind of a really bad idea because... I love history, and now I'm just so sad about it all the time. <laughs> Whether it's American history or Mormon history, there's a lot of closets with lots of skeletons in, <laughs> in all of our histories. So it's depressing. I'm no fun at parties because I'm always telling sad stories. <laughs> so this is one of them. I, it's not all sad, but it's not all. I, I have no tolerance for people trying to make it all one or the other. 
I do fall more on the like, well, maybe sometimes religions need to change and even possibly die. But that doesn't mean that they weren't valuable. And I don't know. Who knows what to do at this point? Do you enjoy teaching? I do love teaching. It's been a lot of fun. Even, even depressing history? You know, I love depressing kids. <laughs> I love teaching at the college level because I can get the real history and kind of see them just be, like, depressed. <laughs> not really. It's not fun to get them depressed, but it does help them feel history and understand how hard it is. And, like, just like right now things feel confusing and difficult, They've kind of always been confusing and difficult. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it really, really wrong. And now it's no different. And so don't ever think you know everything. Just always have a little bit of doubt in the back of your mind and be like, I could be wrong. Because it's not even, you know, if you talk about conservatives and liberals, history, sometimes they got it right, sometimes they got it wrong on both sides. And so you never know for sure until history judges whether or not you were on the right side. So always be willing to say, I could have been wrong. I could be wrong here. Always be willing to doubt your assumptions. And that's, I guess, what I'm enjoying is kind of introducing doubt about everything you thought you knew. So I do like it. Cool. cool. <laughs> Long answer there for a short question. <laughs> All right. Do you have any last thoughts before I let you go? Oh, I think I've had too many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Shannon Caldwell Montez, I really appreciate you being here on Gospel Tangents and sharing your, your wonderful research. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, sorry it was a little rusty so often. <laughs> it's been a little while. COVID messed up all of us. Oh, I know it did. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again. All right. Thanks. Mm -hmm. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Shannon Caldwell Montez. Shannon, thank you so much for sitting down with me and for uh, talking about these your wonderful thesis. I really appreciate it. In our next conversation, I'd like to introduce another uh, up-and-comer, Marianne Clements. She's written about counterfeiting in Nauvoo. He mentioned that Theodore was really skilled at it. And, you know, and so you're like, okay, well, that's kind of weird. And then I find out he was actually arrested for counterfeiting, on counterfeiting accusations in Nauvoo in 1845. And, um, and I'm like, what in the world is going on? Like, was this... Because we'd had stories of Theodore making dyes for coins. And so we had these family stories that were kind of, you know, like tying into this. And so, and I knew a lot of them were more folklore, but I was like, but he definitely had the skills. So was he involved in the Kirtland Safety Society banking no, stuff? No, he was not because he joined the church in May of 1837. If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks. <laughs>